Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for the seventh Sunday of Easter. That's May 21st, 2023. And I believe this is the final podcast of the Sunday School season until next fall. For this podcast, we're looking at the Gospel reading for the seventh Sunday of Easter. And that will be John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Might seem a little strange at first to have a gospel reading this far after Easter that focuses on Jesus' words at the Last Supper. After all, we've had several readings in a row, several gospel readings of Jesus' various post-resurrection appearances to the disciples and to others. Um, But as we get close to... Pentecost next Sunday. This is actually a fitting gospel lesson because it's part of Jesus preparing the disciples for life after his ascension to heaven. So the triumphal entry has taken place. Jesus has spent Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in and or around Jerusalem. Now it's Thursday evening. He is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And he has told the disciples in John chapter 16 that he is going away to his father. And they know from what he has said that he is going back to his father by way of of the cross, by way of suffering and death. And he's also told them that as he has trouble, they too will have trouble. But he ends up comforting them by saying in chapter 16, take heart. I have overcome the world. Now that will not be apparent to their eyes the following day when Jesus is crucified, but it's still true. Remember, Jesus is not crucified because he's powerless, because he can't stop it. Jesus is crucified because he willingly submits to that death for us and for our salvation. All right, so our gospel reading can be divided into two parts. Uh, Jesus is about to pray a prayer in Luke 17. Um, We get the first 11 verses of that prayer in our gospel reading. And the first part, verses 1 through 5, are um, Jesus speaking of himself and his Father, God the Father in heaven. And after that, then, in uh, verses 6 through 11, he's going to speak more for, um, speak more about his disciples interceding for them before his Father in heaven. All right, so the chapter begins with verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, when Jesus speaks of his glory, there are different senses, different meanings to that glory, especially apparent in the book of John. One is the, I guess we could say the innate eternal glory that he possesses because he is the Son of God, begotten of the Father from eternity. Because he is God, he is, by definition, glorious. So we have, for instance, 
John 1, 14, at the very beginning of the gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? So, so that's, that is largely about the glory that Jesus possesses because as God the Father is glorious, so also God the Son is glorious too. The other sense in which Jesus especially uses the, the term glory in the Gospel of John is that he is glorious because he fulfills his Father's will by, by fulfilling his Father's plan for our salvation. So during Holy Week, after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, and before he prays this prayer, he declares, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is John chapter 12. And in John 12, 27 and 28, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So, along with Jesus' person being glorious, because he is God himself, his work is glorious because his work is going about the will of his Father to save you and me. So, the, the cross, the crucifixion, the scourging, his suffering, and his death will look anything but glorious and powerful and, and something that anybody wants. But it's glorious indeed because that is how Christ wins the victory over sin and death and devil so that we might have eternal life. So here in John 17, in verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. In other words, as I go about your plan for the salvation of the world, um, you be about that plan too. So as I glorify you, Father, by fulfilling your plan for salvation, um, glorify me because it's my plan too, right? So um, both Father and Son agree that as awful as Jesus' death on the cross is, it's a glorious thing because that's how God redeems sinners, of course, the, the sentence doesn't end with verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And he continues by saying, Since you, Father, have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, we have here a couple of closely related doctrines called objective justification and subjective justification. Jesus here declares that God the Father has given him authority over all flesh. Authority to do what? In context, to die for the redemption of all. To die to pay the price for the sins of all. 
So when Jesus goes to the cross, he's not just dying for those who will believe in him. He's dying for all the world that whoever does believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So I make this distinction because of, a, of, of the teaching that comes out of, out of Calvinism, which teaches a limited atonement that Jesus only died for those who would believe in him. Actually, I guess Calvin would say that Jesus only died for those whom God chose to believe in him. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. We make a, a distinction between objective justification and subjective justification. The doctrine of objective justification is that Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for all. He died for all who would believe in him. He also died for all who do not believe in him. The price has been paid, which makes their unbelief and their rejection of him that much more tragic. Subjective justification is the teaching that all who believe in Jesus have everlasting life. Another way this is phrased, this might be more helpful for making the distinction, is objective justification is that Jesus died for all. Subjective justification is that Jesus died for you, right? And so you as a believer have eternal life because you know that Jesus died for all, so you're not left out of the redemption. And Jesus died for you because he's made you his own in baptism and keeps forgiving, forgiving your sins. So in, in, in verse 2, Jesus declares that God has given him authority over all flesh and to give eternal life to all whom God has given him because it is God who works faith. So this verse is actually a, a restatement of what God declares in John 3.16. For God so loved the world not just some, but all, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. All right, so, so now we want to define what eternal life is because that's what Jesus does in the next verse. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So salvation is knowing God, says Jesus. And of course, he's already said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if salvation is knowing God the Father then salvation is knowing Jesus, because to know Jesus, the Son, is to know the Father. Jesus says elsewhere, I and, the, I and the Father are one. Now, we need to define what knowing means here, because this is not just historical knowledge, as in, I know that a man named Jesus lived and died 2,000 years ago. Um, there's different kinds of knowing in the Bible, you can know historical facts, or you can have a much more intimate knowledge. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they had a son. Cain was born. So, in that case, 
knowing refers to sexual intimacy between Adam and Eve. So um, the to to know Jesus here is to is to have an an intimate relationship with him, not not a sexual relationship, of course, but an intimate one, where where you and he are 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 say one with one another by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, to know Jesus is to have faith in Jesus. The knowledge here, knowing Jesus, is faith in Jesus, clinging to his promises. And faith is the work of the Holy Spirit. So this is actually a very Trinitarian passage. It's just that the Holy Spirit doesn't really come up in conversation until John... um, I guess he's come up in John 15 and 16 already. At any rate... To know the Father, you believe in the Son, and you believe in the Son because the Spirit gives you faith to believe in the Son. Your salvation is always the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How how humbling and remarkable that uh, God the Father doesn't delegate your salvation like His Son or the Holy Spirit, but all three are always at work to save you. And to keep you sanctified. All right, so Jesus goes on to say in verse 4 to his Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here's these two senses of glory again. Jesus says, I glorified you, Father, on earth by accomplishing the work you gave me to do. So there Jesus' glory is fulfilling God's will for for salvation. And then we get to the other sense of glory. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In other words, Jesus is praying to his Father that his Father gladly receive him back into heaven when he has died and risen and ascended once again. Is this, is this a question? Of course it's not. In fact, um, although Jesus in his human nature dwells upon the earth alone between his birth and his ascension, according to his divine nature, Jesus has never left the throne in heaven, even though he is um, born of Mary and walking around uh, on, on, on the planet, because as God, he's present everywhere, including enthroned in heaven. And as man, before his ascension, he reveals himself in his human nature as, as localized in, in one place at a time. That doesn't mean that today Jesus still um, localizes his body to one place at one time, wherever Jesus is these days, as human nature is. And so if Jesus is enthroned in heaven, he, uh, he, the human Jesus, is enthroned in heaven. And then at the same time, um, he gives us his body and blood in all sorts of places at once as Christians around the world celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is a remarkable thing, though, that, that Jesus ascends into heaven with his, with his human body and keeps it, which means that we can ascend into heaven with our bodies too, which means that once again, God and man dwell together, 
as was possible back in the Garden of Eden. At any rate, in this, in, in this uh, verse 5, Jesus is also foretelling his ascension into heaven, that he will be in his Father's glorious presence once again. And he does so not just because he needs a place to go, but he goes there to be enthroned in heaven to serve as our intercessor and to rule over all things, to be our king for our good. So we have in, say, Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So as the high priest in the Old Testament would carry blood into the most holy place where God dwelt and pour it out to say a sacrifice has been made for the sins of the people, Jesus has gone into the temple of heaven where God the Father is enthroned and said, look, a sacrifice has been made for the sins of the people, and since I'm still here, since I'm risen from the dead, that sacrifice is good forever, which means our redemption is forever. So Jesus ascends into heaven for our good. All right, so that is Jesus' prayer to his Father about glory, um, that he is, in fact, the glorious Son of God who glorifies his Father by going about his, his work of dying on the cross, rising again and ascending to heaven. And once he ascends into heaven, he prays at his Father, um, glorify him when he is in heaven as the glorious Son of God, still interceding for us, which is still going about God's work and plan for our salvation. The second half of our text then is, is Jesus praying for the disciples. And he says this in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. All right, so... So, we have kind of the same mysteries that we've already talked about in the first half of this text here. God the Father, through the doctrine of election, has, has um, given Jesus these disciples. And they know the Father because they know Jesus. They believe in the Father because they also believe in Jesus. How do they believe in Jesus? Verse 8, because Jesus has given them the words of the Father. Jesus has given them faith by speaking God's word to them. And of course, this again is the work of the Holy Spirit who works by the word to forgive sins and to grant faith. 
Jesus goes on in verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. This, uh, this comes across as a shock for someone. Jesus says that I am not praying for the world. Um, this, again, doesn't mean that, that Jesus only prays for those who are bought by his limited atonement. This is not a, a Calvinistic thing again. Jesus, of course, prays for the world. He died to redeem the world. It's just in the context of this prayer, he's praying for his disciples. That's what he's saying. I mean, imagine, for instance, if, if we prayed for Joe, Mary, and Lou, and all the sick on Sunday morning, and somebody said, yeah, but you didn't pray for, for Susan. It's not that we said that Susan isn't worthy of prayer. She just wasn't prayed for in that prayer. We were praying specifically for others, and we perhaps didn't know that Susan was in need of prayer. That's what's happening here. Jesus says in this prayer specifically, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for my disciples because they're in the world. He says, all mine are yours, in verse 10, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. How will the disciples glorify Jesus? They will glorify Jesus by declaring who he is, the glorious Son of the Father from eternity, and they will glorify him by declaring what he does, namely, he goes about God's will of saving us from sin and death and hell. So, by his word, Jesus has made them his disciples, and now by his word, his disciples glorify him. In verse 11, Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. The implication there is that the world is a frightening, threatening place, and the disciples will face trouble, and the disciples will face persecution, even martyrdom. And so Jesus prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So how does Jesus pray for the Father to protect the disciples and us in this frightening, threatening world? Well, we need to be protected from becoming enslaved to sin, death, and devil again, which means we need to be kept in the faith. How are we kept in the faith? God keeps us in his name, which is the same thing as saying God keeps us in his word. By his word, he joins us to Christ. Just like by his word added to elements in the sacraments, he joins us to Christ and keeps us in communion with Christ. And 
in a mystery that I can't even begin to explain to you, Jesus prays that his people be one, even as he, Father and Son, are one. Now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, of course, three persons of one God. They are uh, of the same substance, as we say in the Creed. And, and they, they could not be more one with each other. Remarkably, Jesus says that he makes us one with him. We, in fact, have salvation because he joins us to himself, to his death and his resurrection. And now he prays that we be one with one another. Now, super easy for God the Father and God the Son to be one since they're both holy God. Less likely that God the Son be one with sinners because we're sinners except he makes us holy and joins us to himself. And it seems kind of a stretch to me that that we sinners, though we trust in Christ, could be one with one another. How are we one with one another? We are one with one another in Christ, in his word. By knowing his word, by believing his word, and by confessing his word together. To be one in Christ is really to be one in faith and confession of his word. That is rare to find these days because given the the threatening nature of the world and given the effects of the ecumenical movement from the second half of the last century, people tend to define unity on a very minimalistic basis in the church, as in everybody has all sorts of teachings from the Bible that they believe. We can't really know what's right, but as long as we believe in Jesus, we are one. It's not popular to say this, but that minimalist idea that we just need to believe in Jesus and that makes us one with each other, it's a cop-out. Because Jesus gives us all of his word, and he gives us all sorts of comforting doctrines and profound truths. And as we've talked about in in, in other classes and podcasts, it is possible to know what the Bible says. We don't have to say, you have your idea, I have my idea, who can know for sure? We can say, We know what God's word says. And if we can know that, then we can agree not just that we believe in Jesus, but we can agree in what all of God's word says. That's not popular to say because as soon as you, as soon as one Christian says, I know the truth and you can know the truth, he's saying that everybody who disagrees with them is at least in part wrong. As confessional Lutherans, we sound pretty arrogant saying, we believe that we know what the Bible says. Here's our confession of faith. And if you can, if you disagree with our confession of faith, then you disagree with scripture. Again, we're accused of arrogance, but prove us wrong. 
Or, as Martin Luther said, if we are to be called arrogant, let us call, be called arrogant because of what we believe, because we hold fast to Christ. Indeed, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word, for that is how the Lord keeps us one with each other and one with him. All right, that concludes our podcast for Easter 7, our look at John 17, 1 through 11. God grants you every good gift in your further meditations. God grants you every blessing if you are teaching this to others. And uh, until we resume the podcast, the Lord order your days and your deeds in his peace. Amen.